After mineral water, coffee is the most consumed beverage in Austria. On average, locals drink 2.6 cups of it every day, which adds up to about 160 liters, that's about 43 gallons each year, most of it in the form of espresso and espresso-based concoctions. Vienna in particular has a unique historical connection to coffee. In the roughly 350 years since it was first introduced here, coffee and the rituals surrounding its preparation and consumption have become inextricably intertwined with local culture, a quintessential facet of Viennese identity. In fact, the Viennese Coffee House was honored by UNESCO as an intangible world cultural heritage in 2011, and among the most renowned of the traditional historic coffee houses, the Café Central, which you may be standing in front of now. Since it may also be safe to assume that you currently find yourself in a line waiting to be seated, I'll start with a brief overview of some of your options. That way you'll know exactly what it is you want to order when the time comes. And in case you happen to be listening to this episode at some other cafe or in anticipation of a future visit, these items are also found on pretty much any traditional coffeehouse menu. Once we've covered some of the food and beverage options, I'll tell you more about the historic Café Central itself and why coffee has become such a beloved beverage in Vienna since its introduction to Western Europe in the 17th century. Also pass auf. That's how locals say, okay, listen up. I'm going to talk you through a few of the standard coffee concoctions found on most traditional coffeehouse menus, starting with the basics and working our way up to more complicated specialty drinks. At the center of it all is the humble shot of espresso called a kleiner mocha, a small mocha. By the way, the name mocha for an espresso shot is a holdover from the time before espresso machines when it was still prepared the Turkish way in a special little pot in which the fine grounds and water are brought to a boil together and then served, unseparated, in a small mug. This method of preparation dates back to the 14th century, when coffee beans were first brought from Ethiopia to the Arabian Peninsula by Yemeni traders operating out of the port city Al-Muqa. The name of the port, Al-Muqa, came to refer to its most traded product, which is still prepared and served the same way in much of the former Ottoman Empire today. So ordering a kleiner mocha will get you a single espresso shot, though I'm sure the server will also understand if you ask for a single espresso. And if you want a double, just order a large or grosser mocha. Or if you want a long shot, that's a single shot extended with more water, it's called a verlängerte. Of course, adding milk to espresso changes the color from black to brown, so a single shot with milk is called a kleiner brauner, a small brown. A double shot with milk is called a grosser brauner, or a big brown. And for some reason, adding a bunch of whipped cream to a double espresso gets you a one-horse carriage, or Einspänner. The melange is a locally common variation of the cappuccino with one key difference. Here at the Café Central, a cappuccino is a double shot of espresso with steamed milk and topped with milk foam. A melange is made with a long shot, steamed milk, and milk foam. Though this is often a point of contention, if you go to multiple cafes around town, you'll notice that definitions seem to differ, so you may want to ask to be sure you're getting what you want. In fact, some places will give you the option of getting whipped cream on your melange instead of milk foam. Other places will refer to this as a separate drink, called a Franciscana or a Franciscan monk. By the way, if you're one of those people who mainly drinks their coffee for the milk, you might enjoy a café facet, or backwards coffee a big cup of steamed foam milk served with a shot of espresso, often on the side for you to pour in yourself. 
And if you want to make your Java extra jolly, you'll find that the Viennese have seemingly endless varieties of coffee beverages with booze. They're mostly the same base formula, a double espresso with whipped cream and a shot of some kind. The standard varieties you find on most coffee menus are the Maria Theresia, named for the empress with orange liqueur, the Advocat, or lawyer, with eggnog liqueur, and the Pharisier, or Pharisee, with rum. Here there's also a house special, the Café Central Café, with apricot liqueur. And though it's not on the menu here, most traditional coffee houses will know how to make you a Kaiser Melange, or Emperor's Melange, supposedly Franz Josef's tried and true cure for a hangover, a melange mixed with cognac, honey, and a raw egg yolk. Of course, if you want just a plain cup of joe, American-style drip coffee is called filter café, or comes in a small pot and is called a kenchen café. One more clarification on a common point of confusion. For anyone looking for a coffee over ice cubes, since the German word ice refers to both ice and ice cream, if you order an iced coffee, 99% of the time what you'll get is a couple of scoops of vanilla ice cream in coffee. This is called an ice café, and it's a pretty popular way to drink coffee on a hot summer afternoon here. But if what you're looking for is coffee over ice cubes, you're going to be fighting a bit of an uphill battle. It's pretty uncommon to serve beverages with ice here. So unless there are cocktails on the menu, the place might not even have any ice okay for consumption ready to serve. But if you want to try your luck, be sure to specify that you want coffee with ice cubes. Café mit Eiswürfel. And it wouldn't hurt to add that you don't mean ice café by throwing in a nicht ice café. That's nicht ice café. Café mit Eiswürfel. And a bitte, or please, definitely wouldn't go amiss. But prepare yourself for being told that they can't do it for you. Like I said, if the place serves cocktails, you have a better chance. But it's possible that the only ice they have available is the kind they use for chilling bottles, which is not always handled with the same care as ice intended for consumption and therefore can't be served in drinks. Of course, for those who prefer tea to coffee, most coffee houses will have either a list or a box of teas they can bring for your selection. Often loose leaf teas will come with a recommended steeping time, and you'll usually have to order a portion of milk or cream if you want it. Sugar and sugar replacement options will either be on the table already or come in little packets with your drink, which will arrive on a pewter tray with a glass of tap water. This glass of water is its own interesting little historical nugget. These days, it's common to drink the water, since at some point a supposition developed that it was offered to counteract the diuretic effect of the coffee, essentially to rehydrate after the coffee dehydrated you. It is true that caffeine has diuretic properties, but the fact that it's served to you as a suspension in water already provides you with more than enough hydration to counteract any diuretic effect. The actual reason for the tiny glass of water is out of concern for the appearance of propriety. After stirring your coffee, it was formerly considered the height of ill manners to put your spoon in your mouth. Placing the soiled spoon on the saucer was also not ideal since it would leave an unsightly puddle of brown liquid and milk foam that could then soil the base of the cup and potentially drip and leave stains in your lap. So the mannerly thing to do was to place your soiled teaspoon in the tiny glass of water where it's out of the way and if you need to use it again, it doesn't run the risk of leaving spots on your finery. Full disclosure, I totally stick my spoon in my mouth and drink the water, 
This has become pretty common practice, so if you do it too, you're not going to get any funny looks. That about covers what you can order and expect to get as far as beverages go. If you want something sweet to accompany your drink of choice, have a look in the impressive vitrine for the selection of cakes and pastries, or check out the menu and look for the heading Mehlspeisen. This word, Mehlspeisen, literally translates as flour-based meals. And though Mehlspeisen are nearly always sweet, locals don't actually consider them a dessert per se. As indicated by the name, they're thought of as full meals. These are dishes that were traditionally eaten for a dinner as a meat replacement on Fridays here in Catholic Austria. Perhaps the most internationally famous of these is Apfelstrudel, and you should definitely try some while you're here. But the other strudel options are also worth exploring, as are Palachinken, which are crepes with various fillings, apricot is a particular local favorite, and my recommendation, Kaiserschmarrn. The name means roughly Emperor's Mess or Emperor's Scramble, since it was also the favorite Mehlspeise of Franz Josef I. Kaiserschmarrn is basically an especially fluffy pancake made by separating the egg whites and whipping them stiff before reincorporating them into the batter, which is served in chopped up chunks, usually with plum compote called Zwetschgenröster. And it has to be made fresh to order, so if you're pressed for time, maybe save this idea for later. Now that you might have an idea of what you want, I'll give you a bit of background on how coffee became such an important part of Viennese culture and what it is that makes this coffee house, the Café Central, such a popular destination for visitors. Contrary to a widely held misconception, Vienna was not the first city in Europe to have a coffee house. Istanbul, or Constantinople, holds that distinction with the earliest evidence of businesses dedicated to the preparation and selling of coffee emerging in the 1550s. Drinking coffee quickly established itself as a popular option for Islamic men in between prayers. The beverage wasn't alcoholic, and the venues that served it became regular meeting points outside of the mosque, where worldly issues could be discussed and debated over a game of chess and a shared hookah pipe. While women were excluded from this public coffeehouse culture, Meeting privately to drink coffee became so firmly established that legal provisions were crafted to enable women to divorce their husbands for failure to provide a daily quota of coffee. And the value of coffee as a trade commodity was recognized by the Ottoman Empire early on. It had already gained attention on the Italian peninsula among the upper classes by around 1600. In fact, so the story goes, it had been brought before Pope Clement VIII by a group of worried advisors who wished for him to denounce the drink as unholy due to its origins in the Islamic East. But Clement decided to taste it first, at which point he declared, quote, Why this Satan's drink is so delicious that it would be a pity to let the infidels have exclusive use of it. And he baptized the beverage as a preferable alternative to alcohol. With the Pope's blessing, trade in coffee to Catholic Europe could move forward, which it did in leaps and bounds over the course of the 17th century. And up until this time, the Ottoman Empire had been largely successful in maintaining its monopoly. Dating back to its earliest trade in the commodity, the Ottomans had taken measures to ensure that any exports of coffee to the rest of the world were carefully roasted or parboiled before dispatch in order to ensure that the coffee beans couldn't be used for cultivation. Eventually, though, some viable seeds were smuggled out. Legend has it by a 16th-century Indian Sufi named Baba Budan, who, on his way back from a pilgrimage to Mecca, secreted seven raw beans in his beard, 
from which he was able to establish a coffee-growing industry in India. It wasn't long after that that the Dutch got their hands on some as well, for which they set up a slave labor colony on the island of Java. By 1650, coffee had made its way to Europe's major port cities, Venice, London, Hamburg, Amsterdam, and Marseille. And in London in particular, the custom of drinking it publicly quickly established itself as a very popular alternative to the pub for England's foremost thinkers. By 1700, within only 50 years of its first introduction, there were 2,000 coffee houses in London alone. These were often referred to as penny universities, since coffee cost a penny, and for that price you had the opportunity to engage with other patrons who were often members of the intelligentsia, professionals, learned men, and experts in a range of fields. Over time, cafes came to distinguish themselves according to the expertise of their regular clientele. There were bankers' cafes, writers' cafes, scientists' cafes, stockbrokers' cafes, and publications began to emerge covering the discussions held at these cafes, some focusing on gossip, some on shipping cargo news or financial speculation, some on the latest scientific innovations. Now you may be thinking, hang on, I associate England with tea, not coffee. And these days, the statistics are with you. The average English person today drinks about the same amount of coffee in a year as the average Italian drinks in just two days. That's because one of the coffeehouse's earliest distinctions, as an exclusively male space, may have ultimately contributed to its downfall in Georgian England. Just like in the former Ottoman Empire, in most of Western Europe, coffeehouses typically excluded women. Of course, that didn't mean that women weren't meeting to socialize in public, it just meant that they were doing it in different spaces. What emerged in England as an alternative to coffeehouses were tea rooms, and the sale of tea rather than coffee also came with a distinct business advantage, namely higher profit margins on beverage sales, since tea was far simpler and cheaper to make than coffee. By the early 18th century, the British East India Company had secured a method of trading directly with China rather than going through the Dutch as a middleman, and this quickly quadrupled the amount they were able to import. The company's monopoly over British tea imports versus coffee and chocolate, which were produced in the colonies of Britain's rivals, also eventually led to the impression that drinking tea was also inherently patriotic. And as the proto-middle class emerged in the mid-18th century, new waves of customers who saw the beverage and the ritual involved in making it as a marker of the upper classes began to incorporate tea drinking into their daily routines as an exercise in social aspiration. Ultimately, this larger demand for a product that was also cheaper to produce led to many coffeehouse proprietors switching over. And by the end of the 18th century, England had become a primarily tea-drinking country. But coffee kept its foothold on the continent. If you've listened to my episode dedicated to Amhof, you already know how it arrived in Vienna in the wake of the Second Turkish Siege in 1683. And with the creative new ways of drinking it developed here to appeal to the European palate, over the course of the 18th century, coffee grew into a massive, ever more popular habit. In the year 1700, Europeans were consuming a total of around 500,000 pounds of coffee annually. By 1800, consumption had reached more than 200 times that amount, over 100 million pounds a year. Bach wrote a coffee cantata in 1735, a lighthearted short chamber piece about a father trying to convince his daughter to give up her coffee habit. She refuses. 
The French kings, Louis XIV through XVI, all produced coffee for the court's consumption at Versailles. Voltaire claimed to drink between 40 and 50 cups every day and credited coffee as the source of inspiration behind his Enlightenment-era philosophies. Women in France, excluded from the coffee houses there, began hosting salons, again establishing alternative spaces where they could also participate in this new culture of the public sphere and the social discourse fostered there. Some historians have gone so far as to speculate that the zeitgeist of the Enlightenment era was, at least in part, made possible by this cultural shift. Consider that, prior to the early 18th century, the average adult's daily consumption was around 7 to 8 liters of wine or beer, plus about a liter of spirits, consumed throughout an average workday that lasted around 14 to 15 hours. But with the emergence of the coffee house, a broad range of ideas from a relatively heterogeneous clientele could be discussed soberly, the discourse fueled by a stimulant rather than a depressant. It's hardly a coincidence that so many Enlightenment thinkers, philosophers, inventors, and pioneers were coffeehouse regulars. The ideological seeds of the French Revolution were sown in Parisian coffeehouses, and a number of absolute monarchs recognizing the dangerous potential of such venues as incubators of anti-royalist sentiments issued mandates restricting their business and censoring the publications circulated there. England's Charles II ordered the complete closure of all of London's coffee houses in 1675, even going so far as to forbid the sale of coffee for private consumption. The public outcry was so great that the ban only lasted 11 days. Frederick the Great of Germany also tried a prohibition of coffee in 1777, reasoning that its popularity was cutting into his country's beer industry. In countries where coffee houses were allowed to stay open, traffic there was closely monitored by royalist spies, as was the case in England, France, the Holy Roman Empire, and the American colonies, where coffee was becoming a popular and untaxed alternative to tea in the years leading up to the revolution. But coffee is a commodity with a shockingly conflicted past. While its consumption fueled the development and spread of modern democratic principles like liberty and egalitarianism, its production relied on a supply chain culpable of horrific humanitarian abuses. By 1789, the year of the French Revolution and drafting of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, half of all coffee consumed in Europe was produced on the island of Haiti in shocking slave labor conditions. When, inspired by the principles of the French Revolution, the Haitians revolted in 1791 and abolished slavery there, they were met with brutal retaliation from the French. It took more than a decade and perhaps as many as 350,000 Haitian deaths to finally end French control. Portuguese coffee plantations in Brazil became the next major supplier of the world's growing demand for coffee. Exploding production there, also mostly through forced labor, meant more affordable prices in Europe and North America, so coffee became the go-to drink for factory workers of the industrial age. By 1900, Brazil was exporting nearly 70% of global consumption, with other producers in South America making up most of the remaining 30%. Today, coffee is the most valuable legally traded commodity in the world after oil, and it represents a vital cash crop, especially in the so-called coffee belt in South America, Africa, and Asia. But the dangers of worker exploitation still haven't been fully addressed. Child and forced labor is still rampant, relationships with exporters and brokers can be exploitative, 
and initiatives aimed at paying farmers more equitably need improvement. Heightened consumer attention to these issues in recent years has helped encourage some coffee companies toward more humane and ecologically conscious practices. Julius Meinl, one of the largest Austrian coffee purveyors and supplier of the Café Central, produces an annual sustainability and fair labor standards report outlining their goals. You can read it online in English through their website. Speaking of which, this now iconic company brings us back to the mid-19th century, when Vienna once again asserts central importance in the development of modern coffeehouse culture. While originally founded in 1862 as a spice and dry goods importer that dabbled in the wholesale of green coffee, Julius Meinl became an industry leader through a revolutionary innovation. In 1877, Julius Meinl II invented a process of roasting beans that kept them separate from gases escaping from the burning coal used to heat them. What resulted was a cleaner and more flavorful roast, free of undesirable aftertaste. Since consumers nearly universally roasted their own beans at the time, by offering customers instead a finished product that both tastes better and saved time, Meinl was able to become the largest coffee roaster in Central Europe over the course of just a few decades. This boom also coincided with a massive expansion of the local coffee-drinking population in the second half of the 19th century. For one thing, it had taken until 1856 for Austrian coffeehouses to lift their ban on female patrons, though they were still only served if accompanied by a male guest. But the move did expand the coffeehouse's customer base, and it did so at a time when the number of potential local coffee drinkers was growing quite substantially. In the last half of the 19th century, Vienna became the busy nexus of an increasingly interconnected empire. Railways were built stretching out to the east, and the city's population boomed as a massive influx of Central and Eastern Europeans immigrated to the Austrian capital. Modernization efforts to improve the municipal landscape also drew temporary laborers. Workers responsible for the construction of the Ring Street, the expanded water system, the new canalization, the 10 monumental Ringstrasse era buildings, and the city's earliest public transit routes. Whereas the population of Vienna was recorded at just under 1 million inhabitants in the 1869 census, in 1910, over a period of only about 50 years, that number had more than doubled to around 2.1 million, almost half of a million more than live here today. Vienna was bursting at its seams. Apartments had been divided and subdivided until whole families were living in tiny, thin-walled, badly heated rooms with few amenities. They often shared a toilet and a sink, or basena, with the rest of the floor. Until the late 20th century, incidentally, renting a small apartment with this Klo am Gang was still fairly common practice. For the increasing number of industrial shift workers, the situation was especially bad. Not only did they live in virtual fire traps with noisy neighbors and minimal plumbing, they often could only afford their bed half of the time, meaning that while they were at work, someone else, who had the opposite schedule, would be sleeping in the bed. Obviously, this kind of living situation would majorly impact one's social life. And since people weren't comfortable inviting guests over to their apartments, they would meet instead, especially in the wintertime, in the many coffee houses throughout the city. Here, in the so-called common living rooms, for the price of a cup of coffee, you could sit on upholstered furniture in a heated room where you had access to international newspapers, chessboards, billiards tables, live music, and, best of all, 
the broad social spectrum of other guests sitting at neighboring tables, especially toward the end of the 19th century when the number in operation went from around 200 to more than 1,200 in just a few decades, the Viennese coffee house became a local institution. The Café Central is among these. Originally opened in 1868, it quickly became home to a crowd of the most noted artists, writers, philosophers, and politicians to come out of the Viennese fin de siècle. In some cases, quite literally, the writer and poet Peter Altenberg, he's the slightly creepy papier-mâché figure you see near the front door, by the way, spent so much time in the plush booths of the Centrale that he even used this as his mailing address. And while this may be a slightly extreme example, it's indicative of a mindset that's persistent to this day. You can sit for hours after having ordered only one coffee. Entertainment is offered in the forms of free newspapers and live music, and waiters leave you alone unless you call them over. The plush upholstered furniture, marble top tables, and tonette cane chairs are pretty common features shared by most of the traditional coffee houses here. But the Café Central in particular developed the nickname Schachhochschule, or Chess College, for the quality of chess played by its regulars. By the early years of the 20th century, those regulars included some of the capital city's most brilliant and prolific literati a substantial number of them Jewish. The list of people who came here, especially after the closing of the nearby Café Greensteidel in 1897, reads like a who's who of Viennese culture and politics, from writers Hugo von Hoffmannsthal, Peter Altenberg, Arthur Schnitzler, Karl Kraus, and Stefan Zweig, to painters Gustav Klimt, Egon Schiele, and Oskar Kokoschka, to founders of major movements like Sigmund Freud and Theodor Herzl. And since this was the favorite hangout of many local politicians, the café also saw its share of controversial figures. An old anecdote tells of a prophetic interaction between a couple of local politicians and a certain Russian revolutionary who was going by the name of Braunstein at the time. Sometime shortly before the First World War, these two local politicians were discussing the likelihood of a revolution breaking out in Russia, to which one guffawed, and who's going to organize this revolution? Mr. Braunstein sitting in the Centrale, I suppose, and laughed dismissively. As it turned out, when Mr. Braunstein, one of the Centrale's most frequent guests and prolific chess players, returned to his homeland shortly thereafter, he reassumed his real name, Leon Trotsky. And apparently during January of 1913 alone, Trotsky was joined at the Centrale by a few other infamous regulars. These included Yosef Vizarianovich Jukashvili, who we now know today as Yosef Stalin, Josip Broz, remembered today as Yugoslavian leader Marshal Tito, and the 24-year-old failed art student Adolf Hitler, who would come here when he could scrape together a couple of coins for a coffee. The cultural and ideological exchanges that have taken place in Vienna's coffee houses over the last two centuries or so have defined Austrian music, literature, philosophy, and politics on a broad scale and provided a space for intellectual and aesthetic experimentation. It's a cherished institution that weathered the challenging years of World War I and the financial crisis that followed by continuing to offer its patrons an affordable venue to consume news, discuss politics, and even watch cabaret performances. Some coffee houses even opened as the city's first tanz cafés, offering a venue to dance to the newly imported American jazz music. With the annexation of Austria by the Third Reich in 1938, the Nazi Party, which had broadly characterized coffeehouse culture as Jewish and degenerate, 
began a system of identification, closure, and Aryanization that spelled the end for many of the traditional businesses. Those that had survived the NSDAP then faced the post-World War II years, when shortages of key ingredients like coffee, chocolate, sugar, and dairy products forced owners to either shift focus or close. In fact, the Café Central was not able to stay afloat during the war. Much of the Säulenhalle, the room in which the majority of the café is situated today, was destroyed by a bomb, forcing it to close its doors in 1943. Many of those that did survive the war began operating as café restaurants, emphasizing catering rather than coffee in order to stay afloat. Another common sight, coffee alternatives, or café ersatz, here often called Deutsche Café or German coffee, often made from malted barley, chicory, or chestnuts. During this period, the facilities of the former Café Central were slowly brought back into a state fit for use. The rubble was cleared away, and measures were taken to address some of the most crucial structural damages. In fact, most of these repairs were made by the Wiener Basketballgemeinde, an association of basketball enthusiasts and players who were then able to play in the renovated space inside what they called the Herengasse Hall. It wasn't until 1975, more than three decades after its closure, that the venue was restored to its current state. Since reopening, tradition has governed the Central's business model, which has returned as much as possible to its historic character, complete with bamboo-framed newspapers, a daily program of live piano music, and Vina Schmey, the ineffable blasé wit of a typical coffeehouse waiter. If you'd like to learn more about how inextricably intertwined I see the Viennese coffeehouse with the local Viennese identity, be sure to listen to my episode, Meet the Locals, in my Welcome to Vienna info pack. And if you get the chance, I'd strongly recommend also visiting some other coffee houses and cafes throughout the city to tease out their individual characters and clientele. Our next stop is pretty much a straight shot from here. And if you haven't satisfied your sweet tooth yet, you'll definitely have a chance now. So if you're exiting the Café Central through its main doors, head straight down Herengasse against the direction of car traffic. The street ends at a massive traffic circle with exposed Roman ruins at its center. This is Michaelerplatz, and I have an entire separate episode dedicated to this square on my must-sees tour. So if you're interested in learning more about the Roman presence here, exploring St. Michael's Church, or seeing Mozart's death mask, be sure to check it out. But for this Taste of Vienna tour, we're headed just a few storefronts off of this square. So when you reach Michaelerplatz, take a hard left onto a street called Kohlmarkt. This will place the large green dome of the Hofburg Imperial Palace at your back. As you scan the shops on your left side, look for a white facade bearing a brown oval sign reading Demel, D-E-M-E-L. If you pass Tommy Hilfiger, you've gone too far. Once you arrive at Demel, press play on episode 12. <laughs> 